My name is Vivian Catfield, and this is Haunted Muse, a podcast that showcases my writing work in the horror, paranormal, supernatural, and southern gothic genres, as well as the folklore and history that inspired it. This is episode 14 of Haunted Muse, and the first episode of three to feature a brand new standalone short story, as opposed to the other three novel-length tales, which are presented on Haunted Muse as weekly serials. I wrote this new story especially to have something shorter for Halloween that everyone could listen to because even though it's in three segments, they're all pretty short and you could listen to each of them together, one after the other, in one sitting. Okay, so here we go. A short story. Sight Unseen Barbara Olson Walsh Hartman had never been to Savannah. She'd been to Cannes and London, Paris and Rome, New York many times, but never Savannah. I thought you hated it there, she said to Joe. All that business when we first met, about your dad and wanting to leave the past behind. Why would you ever want to move back now? Joe sat grumbling at the kitchen counter, bathed in the soft glow of his laptop screen. It's not completely my choice, but Mama, she needs me. Ever since she had that hip replacement, she hasn't been the same. It's been harder for her to get around. Being an only child comes with responsibilities. You know that as well as I do, after all you went through with your dad. Barbara nodded. Her father, Jordan, a boat mechanic on Lake Arrowhead, had died of lymphoma the previous year. She'd spent most of it driving him up and down from the mountains for treatments at Cedar sinai in Los Angeles. It was the least she could do for a man who'd raised her as a single dad after her mother had abandoned them to return to her life as a dancer in Vegas. Having overestimated the lasting appeal that a life of quiet motherhood in Clear Mountain Lakes might have for her, Jean had only reappeared in Barbara's life sporadically. When she died in a car crash during Barbara's sophomore year of high school, Jean's friends hadn't even known enough about her daughter or her ex-husband to invite them to her funeral. But what about Grayson and Malia? Barbara asked. They're supposed to start college this fall, and I know for a fact that Gray hasn't applied to any film schools outside of L.A. Then there's your job. Joe raised a hand to stop her. We've already discussed my work. This isn't an issue. There's completely no reason for us to stay in Seattle just for my job. Because of COVID, all cybersecurity personnel at the upper management level are allowed to work remotely from now on at the same rate of pay, and with the same duties. As for Malia, she hasn't the slightest clue what she wants to do with her life at this point, hasn't applied to any colleges at all. As long as she thinks she's still going to be an actress, well, <sighs> Joe blew out an exasperated breath, let's just say she's going to be living with us for a while longer. Barbara gave Joe the look, a look that said, tread carefully, mister. Sorry, sorry, Joe said, putting up his hands. I didn't mean to offend or to discount either her ambitions or yours. It's just that acting is a career that takes a winding path. You know about that too, so I shouldn't have to go into it. Gaining an understanding nod from his wife that was nevertheless accompanied by crossed arms and a step away, Joe continued to backpedal. Taking that into consideration... Isn't Georgia the hottest thing in film right now? Malia could just as easily start out there. As for Grayson, why couldn't he apply to SCAD? Joe reached out an arm to encircle his wife's waist, pulling her close to him. 
heck, having all that energy around the house might even get you interested in jumping back into that whole game yourself. You've got to do something, right? Even if just to fend off empty nest syndrome. Maybe, Barbara wheedled. But where would we live? Not with your mother, I hope. Actually, Joe replied, turning his laptop screen around, I was considering this place. What do you think? We'd have to put in a bit online, sight unseen. Otherwise, it'll be gone before we could even fly out there. Barbara put down her botanical gin and tonic and peered into Joe's laptop screen. Scrolling through the photos, she had to admit the house at 26 Habersham Street was flawless. Almost 3,000 square feet of perfectly restored southern charm. Located, as the advertisement read, just off historic Warren Square on one of the original oversized Oglethorpe planned lots. The beautiful fountains and natural light-filled coastal decor were like something out of a dream. Especially to Barbara, an extroverted California girl at heart who'd spent the past several months cooped up with her family over a gloomy Seattle winter. Don't you think the price is a little high, Joe? Barbara equivocated, trying to find a flaw. Her husband didn't take the bait. He clicked on the Contact a Realtor link and began typing. In this market? Not really. If the only thing you can find wrong is the price, then that just means you like it. Joe leaned over, kissed his wife, and kept typing. Good thing I can afford it. That had been in January. Eight months later, Barbara found herself on the beach at Tybee Island, surrounded by a film crew and still reeling from the complete turnaround her life had taken. Barbara and Joe had bought the house. Grayson had not balked when his mother told him so. Instead, he'd calmly added SCAD to his list of schools and seemed happy to accept a half-tuition scholarship when his acceptance letter came in March. Malia, also taking the cross-country move in stride, with the same eh, nonchalant shrug as she did everything else, applied to several Georgia talent agents, but was rejected. Then, after they moved in June, Malia applied for a job as a tour guide, with a company that did costume ghost tours around Savannah's historic squares, and was hired. She had dismissed Barbara's recommendations to keep her schedule open, though, and applied to more talent agents first, saying she might do so, but she wanted to earn her own money first. Barbara, on the other hand, had been welcomed with open arms by the first agent she'd applied to in Savannah. Within only a few weeks of auditions, she'd landed a gig as the lead on the pilot of a new streaming series, Doldrums, about a private investigator who was hired to solve a cold case homicide in a gated beachfront community. Over the course of the 12-episode season, Barbara's detective would slowly unravel the tangled threads of plot surrounding the disappearance of a local college girl who was originally thought to have been killed in a drunken boating accident. Later in the series, her death would be blamed on a poltergeist as a cover-up for the patriarch of one of the community's wealthiest families. Guided by a 20-something hot female director with a rainbow of bright spiked hair who had been so overcome with fangirl emotion that she cried upon first meeting her, Barbara had reservations about joining the cast of Doldrums at first. However, once they'd all been on set together working for a few days and the director had overcome being starstruck, Barbara had to admit it was the best acting experience she'd ever had, one she thought would never happen again. It was typecasting, to be sure. 
very similar in plot to the first series Barbara had done years ago. Back in the late 90s, the heyday of such divergently different major network shows, such as The X-Files and Beverly Hills 90210, the young woman, then known as Barbara Olson, starred in a short-lived television show called Mendocino Coast. Written in the style of a genre-bending amalgamation of several Fox network shows popular at the time, Barbara played a character named Dylan Quinn, a San Francisco detective who followed the trail of a drug kingpin's daughter's death inland from the city to the mountains, where the young woman's demise was blamed on a Sasquatch. The mystery of who, or what, killed Sabrina Salazar was never solved. However, because the audiences were left hanging. Just after Detective Quinn found a Sasquatch suit covered in Sabrina's blood hidden inside a marijuana harvesting cabin at the end of the first season, the network had pulled the plug on the series. Their decision had nothing to do with the performance of either Barbara or the show, both of which had very high ratings. Rather, it had to do with Barbara's then-fiancé, who would become Grayson's father. Lucian Luke Walsh grew up in an overprivileged situation, the son of an investment banker in Holby Hills. Even Barbara could admit that, though she loved Luke anyway. He'd been tall and handsome because his mother, a Swedish model, had been breathtakingly beautiful enough that her genetics overcame those of his father, a pudgy man of German descent whose real last name had been Wallach. His son had chosen to Americanize the spelling, completely ignoring his heritage. Then, Luke ironically spent the remainder of his life making unprofitable, somewhat esoteric documentary films about social justice issues. Given his history of temper tantrums, Barbara was less than surprised when she was called into the producer's office from the set of Mendocino Coast to hear that the network found Luke's choice to film an expose documentary on the marijuana industry in the Northern California mountains objectionable. They demanded that Barbara intervene, arguing that Luke's documentary was making real-life drug traffickers in the region uneasy and uncooperative, and was in turn endangering production on their own fictional paranormal mystery series. Although Barbara had tried to reason with her then-fiancé, Luke had been adamant on continuing with his documentary. He'd accused Barbara of, quote, "...bending to the will of the man." and told her that if she had any principles at all, she should march right back into the producer's office and give him a lecture on First Amendment rights. They'd argue. Probably the worst argument of their entire relationship, with the culmination being Barbara's exclamation that she, quote, couldn't afford principles because she needed to work for a living. However, the production company was unwilling to accept Barbara's explanation on how she'd tried and failed to get Luke to listen to reason. Fearing some kind of misguided, disastrous retaliation, the network pulled the plug on Barbara's series, Mendocino Coast. Two weeks afterward, Barbara finally took the pregnancy test that had been sitting on the bathroom counter in her tiny apartment in Los Feliz while she waited in denial, praying that her period was just late. In a surprising wave of chivalry, after the revelation that she was expecting Grayson, Luke proposed. They were married a month later on Luke's father's yacht. Neither Barbara's father nor any of her closest girlfriends, whom she'd kept up with since her teenage years at Rim of the World High School in Lake Arrowhead, chose to attend the wedding. Labeled as, quote, difficult and uncooperative by the studio over the incident, Barbara was dropped by her Hollywood agent. A few months later, she became a stay-at-home mom to Grayson, and that 
Hibben, all she wrote. Over the next decade, Barbara became the most involved mom at Brentwood School. Raising her hand for every program leader and community engagement activity she could find, Barbara tried not to pay attention as Luke squandered his inheritance on one unsellable documentary project after another. She also chose to ignore the endless parade of exceedingly beautiful, yet shockingly inept, female personal assistants that Luke kept employed with his production company, Proletariat Films. Thus, no one was more surprised than Barbara when, the summer after Grayson finished his fifth grade year, she came home from planning the upcoming year's capital campaign benefit dinner to find Luke floating face down in their indoor heated saltwater swimming pool. A note left on the bar under the glass that contained Luke's final Mai Tai explained it all. Debt collectors would arrive in the morning to take possession of the house and the cars. All of the money was gone. Embarrassed that they had chosen to turn a blind eye to their son's ridiculous spending habits and not wanting their grandson to have to experience any more additional trauma or disruption, Mr. and Ms. Wallach had offered to let Barbara and Grayson live in a guest house at their Holmby Hills compound. However, as summer drew to a close, Barbara became uneasy about the idea of allowing Luke's parents to pay for both Grayson's private school and all of their living expenses indefinitely. Wanting to contribute, Barbara mentioned the idea of returning to acting, but the Wallachs were adamantly against the idea. None of the women in their family, Ms. Wallach replied, horror-stricken at the thought, had to work. So, Barbara's life resumed the same pattern as it had before Luke's death. An endless monotony of charity lunches and parental chaperoning, with only two minor changes— First, her father and girlhood friends from Lake Arrowhead began to reach out to her again. As they slowly rebuilt their relationship during Grayson's 6th and 7th grade years, Barbara came to realize that they hadn't abandoned her without reason, as she'd feared. They just hated Luke that much. Then, second, in the fall semester of Grayson's 8th grade year, for by that time Barbara only marked time by Grayson's school calendar, Jonas, or Joe, Hartman, appeared in Barbara's grief counseling group. Getting past her sense of self-blame for Luke's suicide had been surprisingly easy once Barbara made the breakthrough that she'd ceased being close enough to Luke even to talk to him on a daily basis years before his death. She'd chosen to continue with her group counseling sessions anyway, though, because she liked the camaraderie. To Barbara, it was reassuring to physically be in the same room with a myriad of different kinds of people who'd experienced a similar tragedy. No matter if they'd been undeserving angels or blameworthy devils in their family members' suicides, they all just looked like regular folks to the casual observer. Except for Joe Hartman. His story was different. His wife had merely attempted suicide, but not succeeded. She was, as Joe described it to the group on his first night, in a permanent voluntary psychiatric care situation. A few weeks later, after Barbara got up the courage to ask Joe out for coffee after the meeting, Joe had told her the rest. That Kaya, his wife, had locked their daughter, Malia, in the basement for days without food during a prolonged psychotic episode before finally attempting suicide. Only because a neighbor stopped by to drop off some mail mistakenly delivered next door had Kaya been found in time to call the paramedics, who'd pumped the pills out of her stomach. 
Hearing the girl banging on the railing to the basement stairs, because she was by that time too weak to stand, the police who arrived after the paramedics broke down the basement door. Malia was taken to a separate children's hospital, not only because they had a specialist in pediatric nutrition who could assess the toll that almost four days without food had taken on the girl, who had only been eight at the time, but also to ensure that mother and daughter were kept separate. Having no other family in Hawaii, Joe had been granted an extended emergency leave from his naval duties as an intelligence security officer in the Persian Gulf to return and spend time putting his family back together. After speaking with Malia and her psychologist, Joe learned that this was only the longest in a series of episodes during which Kaya had locked Malia in the basement over the last few months of his deployment. Kaya's friends had been covering for her. When he was allowed to meet with Kaya, Joe described her as surprisingly coherent. Her reason for locking Malia in the basement was so that an entity whom she called the Shadow Man could not get to her. Even under antipsychotic medication, Kaya insisted that this Shadow Man followed both her and Malia constantly, and that he had pushed her to try to commit suicide. Rather than balking at Joe's news that he might put in for a transfer to a different post so that he could care for Malia, Kaya seemed almost overly enthusiastic about the idea of her daughter being moved far away from their home in Hawaii. She thought moving away might help, quote, confuse the shadow man so that he couldn't find her. Do you think she was right? Barbara asked, sensing what Joe's reaction would be. No, absolutely not, the ever-practical Joe denied. Kaya's always had these spooky notions, reading tarot cards, claiming to sense ghosts. It's all bullshit as far as I'm concerned. So you didn't believe her, Barbara probed. She really liked Joe, even then. The steadiness of his blue gaze was straightforward and reassuring. Yet there was something cold about how quickly and flatly he dismissed Kaya's concerns over the so-called shadow man that made her ill at ease. It seemed like a silencing, which to her was a red flag, especially after Luke. Let's just say I chose not to, for Malia's sake, Joe explained. Her therapist said it would be best for her emotional recovery not to entertain any of her mother's delusions, so that she could make a clean mental break between what she'd been through and a new, more stable life. Barbara had accepted the logic of Joe's explanation, and after Joe's divorce became final, they'd begin dating officially. When Joe received a job offer in Seattle a few months later, he'd chosen to take early retirement from the Navy and move. However, they continued to build a relationship from a distance. He and Barbara married that following summer. Barbara was relieved to say goodbye to the Wallachs, who, even though had been nothing but supportive to her financially, still made Barbara feel guilty. They were Luke's parents, and she'd been the one who, in their eyes, had failed to save their only son from himself. Four years later, it still felt like the right decision to Barbara. Both Malia and Grayson had adjusted well to no longer being only children, and Barbara had bonded with Malia over their mutual love of acting. The only pestering problem in the entire situation was Joe's mother, Amelia, who lived in Savannah. A Navy widow, she played on Joe's considerable sympathies by hounding him constantly to, quote, move home, 
an ironic statement in light of the fact that Joe had left home literally on the day after he graduated high school to join the Navy and returned afterward only intermittently through the years when his mother shamed him into it. Over time, Barbara had gleaned through a series of halting conversations that Amelia's neediness wasn't the real cause of Joe's choice to distance himself from his hometown. Instead, it had been the memories of his father, Gerald, an abusive alcoholic throughout Joe's boyhood that had kept him away. As he'd explained to Barbara not long after they'd met, Savannah is full of too many ghosts. There isn't any room left for me there. Barbara had reminded Joe of this statement in her initial expressions of doubt regarding their relocation. What happened to all of the ghosts? she'd asked. Joe's reply was a shrug. Ghosts are just like everyone else, I suppose. Eventually, they move on to haunt someone else. Maybe ghosts move on, Barbara thought, glancing down at her phone. But mother-in-laws don't. It was Amelia. Ugh. Even though she hadn't moved in with them fully when they'd relocated to Savannah, she might as well have. Barbara's mother-in-law was a constant presence in their new home her sharp, ice-blue eyes always searching for any fault she could find in Barbara's household, which she prowled daily in her power chair. When Barbara returned her call as the crew were taking their union-required 30-minute lunch break, Amelia didn't bother with a greeting. She just launched into interrogation. Have you seen Grayson today? No, Amelia, I haven't, Barbara sighed. One of the many sore spots between herself and Joe's mother had been Barbara's choice to restart her acting career. Amelia made no bones about the fact that between Joe's first and second wives, she preferred Kaya, even though her mental health had begun to decline uh, when she knew her because Kaya preferred to stay at home, or that she preferred her natural granddaughter, as she referred to Malia, over Barbara's son, Grayson. Hmph, Amelia scoffed, an expression of discontent that to Barbara signaled the older woman's internal motor revving up to complain. Hmph, I thought so. He claimed that he went to class this morning, but he left his camera and his backpack. I haven't been able to reach him on his phone. You never know what young men like that might be up to. Maybe he was just in a hurry and forgot. Barbara replied, choosing to ignore both Amelia's add-on, young men like that, and her insinuations. Although Grayson was, in his mother's eyes, a typical brooding teenager, Joe's mother was deeply disturbed by his choices to wear dark clothing, even in the blinding heat of a southern summer, and to spend most of his time huddled in his room over his laptop, editing video. I'll call him, though, just to make sure. Taking Barbara's nonchalance as a dismissal of her attempt to tattle, Amelia hung up on her without saying goodbye. Barbara rolled her eyes and checked the clock on her phone. Fifteen minutes left before she needed to be back in place on set. She scrolled through her directory and pressed gray. The phone rang directly to voicemail. Still, unconcerned, she, since she knew that Grayson often lost track of time when he was wired into a computer somewhere, Barbara texted her son to call back as soon as he got the chance. Then, she went back to the makeup trailer to get touched up before the next scene. Talking to Amelia always made her sweat a little. Seven hours later, as Barbara sat again in the trailer taking off her makeup for the day, her cell finally rang. Her hands and face covered in cream-based makeup remover, she tapped the speaker button with her pinky knuckle. Hey, Gray, where you been? 
This isn't Miss Grayson, Miss Olson, an elderly male voice replied with a deep southern accent. This is Officer Campbell, calling on Grayson's phone. I just picked him up here in Laurel Grove South. Cemetery gates close at dusk, and I've been watching him for a while. Just standing there, looking at this one headstone. He is mumbling to himself and crying. Didn't appear high enough, though, and wasn't causing any disturbance, but he seems pretty shaken up. I try not to cause kids no more trouble than I have to. God knows the police have a bad enough rap these days. When I asked him if there was anyone I should call to come and pick him up, he handed me his phone and said, Call you. Stunned, Barbara set her washcloth down on the counter. I really appreciate that, Officer Campbell. Could you put Grayson on the phone, please? She heard a bit of shuffling as Campbell handed Grayson the phone. Gray? What's happening, honey? What's wrong? Oh, Mom, Grayson replied, his voice sounding forlorn and hollow. They killed her. Oh, God, poor Daisy. It was all my fault. I saw it. Gray, I, I don't understand. Who's Daisy? Another shuffling sound from the other end as Officer Campbell took back the phone. Ma'am, it's me again. There's no immediate cause for alarm. What your son appears to be referring to is the name on that headstone he was staring at all afternoon. Daisy. No other name, but that's not unusual. The part of the cemetery where I found your son holds a lot of old slave graves that were moved from Calhoun Square. Your boy goes to SCAD, right, Miss Olson? Yes, he's a freshman, film major, but why does that matter? Barbara questioned, wondering at the source of the change in subject. Thought so. His t-shirt has the college name on it. Nah, it's just these artsy kids, you know. They can get a bit easily overwhelmed, emotionally speaking. Especially when they're from up north or out west somewhere and have been a little too sheltered. Coming to grips with the history of a southern city kind of shocks them sometimes, you know. Barbara bristled at his condescending tone. I'm afraid that I do, Officer Campbell. You see, I am also an actor, but I wouldn't exactly consider myself or Grayson a sheltered West Coast type. I'll be there within the hour to pick Grayson up. I'm out on Tybee Island, just getting ready to leave the set now. Oh, Officer Campbell exhaled. I didn't know. I'm sorry if... Yet the rest of his apology went unheard as Barbara's end of the line went dead. Fifty-five minutes later, Grayson Walsh sat, his six-foot-four-inch angular frame, slumped against the door, as far away from his mother as he could manage, in the passenger seat of her Range Rover, in the driveway at 26 Habersham. They hadn't spoken along the short drive home across town. At last, Barbara broke the silence, unable to stand it anymore. Do you care to tell me why you cut class all day to stand in a cemetery staring at a grave of someone you don't know? Grayson thought for a moment. He seemed to be choosing his words carefully, which to Barbara was not a good sign that her son's response would be completely the truth. I was doing research. Research for what exactly? A documentary I was working on. I see, Barbara said, carefully censoring her own words and hoping they didn't sound dismissive or paranoid. After Grayson had first expressed interest in being a filmmaker, Barbara had tried to subtly encourage whatever creative interest he had in anything narrative or imaginary, hoping that her son's career would not turn out to mirror his father's. A documentary about what, exactly? Something for school? It's about a slave woman? 
Drayson replied cautiously. She lived in our house once and died there. Breathe, Barbara thought silently to herself. It's one project. He's just exploring his new surroundings and gaining some social awareness. Not like he's planning on spending five years following homeless ex-cons and drug dealers around the streets like Luke did. Then, to Grayson, she asked, Was there something particularly interesting or tragic about her life that you've encountered? Anything important an audience might be interested in? Grayson didn't answer for what seemed to Barbara an unreasonably long time. I'd rather not say until it's finished. Before that would kind of ruin it. It's like a mystery, and I don't want anyone to have any influence over where it's going. Then I might not get the whole story right. But when I'm done, I'll, I'll show you. I promise. And hopefully you'll understand, okay? The K was for Barbara the most important part of her son's answer. Even before his father had died, Grayson had always been a people pleaser, asking anyone what they'd like to see in a picture before he drew it. Although occasionally, Barbara wondered about this tendency and Grayson's general lack of assertiveness. She reasoned it was better to be hyper-aware of the feelings of others than to dismiss them entirely in favor of his own esoteric interests, though. Selfishly, she realized, too, that doing so demonstrated a little more of her personality in the young man than his father's. For that, she was always glad. Kay, Barbara smiled back at her son, genuinely feeling better. However, her relief was short-lived. As she and Grayson entered the house, they could hear Joe and Amelia arguing in the main living room. Barbara held up her hand to stop Grayson, and they stood lingering in the foyer. Barbara could see them through a crack left open in the door, yet she doubted they could see her. A daughter should be able to see her mother whenever she chooses. Plane tickets halfway around the world aren't cheap. Malia was practically begging you for the money. It will take her months to earn it, making a measly $8 an hour part-time. All you're doing by refusing her is forcing her to work, which means she'll have to keep delaying everything else in her life wasting her time for peanuts at that sideshow. If Kai is doing so much better now that her doctors believe she's ready to be released from care, why would you want to keep them apart? The older woman's face was clenched with spite. The long wrinkles down the sides of her high Germanic cheeks were drawn and deep. Mama, you know Kai's always been a crazy maker, even before she became mentally ill. I know that you always felt you had more in common with her than Barbara, but it's true. Plus, I'm not sure Malia's ready yet. Being around Kaya confuses her. We've just moved across the country and Malia still hasn't made up her mind about college. Barbara and I are hoping she'll finally settle in and choose somewhere around here. But if she goes out to Hawaii and spends a long time with her mother, it's more likely she'll stay there. Is that what you want? To never see Malia? Because that's what's going to happen if she moves to Hawaii to live with Kaya after she's released. You may have preferred Kaya, but newsflash, Mom, she never liked you. Amelia's retort was cut off by a loud crash from the kitchen as several large skillets fell from the rack over the island. Sorry, a feminine voice called back in a sheepish sing-song that split the word into two syllables. 
Barbara saw the hateful expression on Amelia's face soften. Instantly, she transformed from vicious harpy to harmless old lady. Forget my career, Barbara thought, as she often did watching her mother-in-law's emotions turn on a dime. That woman's acting is worth an Academy Award. Is that you, dear? Did you forget something? Amelia's voice was now so honeyed it could sweeten tea. My keys. I left the set I needed to unlock the museum, Malia said, stepping through from the kitchen into the living room. As always, when she hadn't thought about it in a while, her stepdaughter's effortless beauty amazed Barbara. Tall, voluptuous, and olive-complected, Malia was stunning, a fact only enhanced by the 18th-century gentlewoman's costume that was her uniform for the ghost tour company. Although she'd gotten her own mother's height and knew how to turn her face properly so that her Roman nose seemed distinguished rather than distracting on camera, Barbara knew she had completely missed out in the curves department. After her first week as a tour guide, Malia had told Barbara she was surprised at how many positive Yelp reviews she'd gotten, even though she was still learning all the stories for the stops on her route. Barbara's only surprise was that no talent agent had slapped up, snapped up Malia yet for a client. We were just talking about you, Amelia continued. Do you have a minute? I believe your father has something he wants to say. Joe looked pained as his mother smiled smugly. Go on, Joe. Tell her what we've decided about you're going to visit Kaya next week. Seeing the expectant look on Malia's face, Barbara knew Joe was trapped. They'd already agreed that by refusing to give Malia the money for an expensive plane ticket to see her mother in Hawaii, hopefully she'd have to make the decision about her next step in life without Kaya's influence. His choices were to either crush Malia's hopes of seeing her mother well again now, or to stand up for what he and Barbara had agreed was the better choice to stall a bit on Malia's visit until after she'd made her college decision so that her mother could not persuade her to move back to Hawaii for good. Deciding to pretend that she'd only heard the bit about Malia leaving her keys and hoping to avoid a direct confrontation, Barbara decided on distraction instead. Malia, honey, could I drop you off back at the museum? I know parking's going to be tough to find on a Friday night. Then you could just give me a buzz whenever you're ready. Director gave me a bunch of new changes to go over tonight, so I'll be up late. It wasn't a lie, and it got them out of the house. Her eyes meeting Joe's, she could feel her husband's relief. Saved. Thank you. Yet, as she turned back to Malia for a response, Barbara also caught the pointed stare of her mother-in-law. Pure venom. Like a snake that struck and missed, Barbara thought. Uh, sure, Malia replied, feeling the tension in the room subside. I'll just lock my car and meet you around front. Walking back through the foyer, Barbara whispered to her son, I won't be gone long. Let's make dinner tonight when I get back, okay? Together. Vegetarian lasagna with five different kinds of cheese like you like, okay? Okay, Grayson replied quietly. He hadn't moved from the spot next to the door since they'd walked in the house. It's better with sausage, Amelia called after Barbara as she shut the door behind her. Wasting no time in the Range Rover on the way to the museum, Barbara thought it was best to be truthful with Malia. We just want you to be able to make your own decisions first, she concluded, without any influence from Kaya or feeling like you have to protect her or take care of her. College is a big deal. I wish that I'd gone so I'd have had something to fall back on. You'd have our complete support to study at school at a school with a conservatory, if you wanted, for acting. Then you could always teach or go to graduate school if nothing else panned out. 
Malia stared at the dashboard. The university at Manawa has a great theater program. Shit. Barbara cursed silently. She's already been thinking about it. Now what? Yeah, to Malia, she answered. Yes, I'm sure they do, but you don't want to limit yourself to only one choice. You want to audition for as many as you can, because you never know who might offer you a scholarship and... Malia cut her off. What if I was already planning on auditioning when I went out to see Mom? Would you give me the money for the ticket then? That way, everyone could have what they wanted. Taken aback by her stepdaughter's uncharacteristically sharp tone, Barbara snapped back. It isn't about what we want, your father or me or Kaya. It's about what you want. If that were the case, you'd have already given me the money for the ticket, Malia snapped back. Hopping out of the car, she called back over her shoulder through the open window. Don't bother picking me up. I can get a ride. Go spend some time with Grayson. If you haven't noticed, he's been super weird lately. Definitely needs more of your helicoptering than I do. Teenagers, Barbara thought, pulling away from the curb as she punched Whole Foods into the destination box on her Direction Finder app. After almost six months in Savannah, she still got turned around among the squares, never knowing which direction she'd end up going among the one-way streets. As she roamed the aisles in search of zucchini and tomato sauce, Barbara pondered that metaphor. So many directions to go, but none of them ultimately led to anywhere. This is the end of part one of three of the short story, Sight Unseen. It's a Halloween special on the Haunted Muse podcast. Be sure to tune in to part two of Sight Unseen on the next episode. See you there. Until next time, this is Vivian Catfield reminding you to remain ever watchful because you never can tell someone or something somewhere out there just might be watching you. Thank you.